You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Russian cyber operations in southeastern Europe, the challenge of containing the cyber phases of a hybrid war, Russian and Chinese cyber activity in Latin America, greenwashing influence operations, Rick Howard looks at risk probabilities, Dinah Davis from Arctic Wolf looks at ransomware payment myths, and an Iranian threat actor exploits log4j vulnerabilities against Israeli targets. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, August 29, 2022. On Friday and Saturday, respectively, Montenegrin and Bulgarian officials accused Russia of conducting cyber attacks against their country's infrastructures. BNE IntelliNews reports, Montenegro's National Security Agency said on August 26th that several Russian agencies were behind a cyber attack on key IT systems of state institutions earlier in August. Outgoing Prime Minister Drayton Abazovic said that Montenegro was at the peak of a hybrid war, adding, the following day, Bulgaria's former ruling GERB party said it was attacked by Russian hackers, who aimed at publications on three specific topics on its social media pages. Earlier attacks, also attributed to Russian threat actors, had hit Albanian government services. All three countries have generally supported the cause of Ukraine in the present war, with Albania and Montenegro being particularly vocal in their support of extensive sanctions against Russia. Public Administration Minister Miras Dukaj said on Twitter... Certain services were switched off temporarily for security reasons, but the security of accounts belonging to citizens and companies and their data have not been jeopardized. The state-owned power utility was among the services affected and has switched some automated services to manual operation as a precaution. Montenegro's attribution of the incidents to Russian cyber attack was direct and unambiguous. Metro News reports... The Podgorica-based Agency for National Security blamed hackers based in Russia for efforts to bring down government websites, communications, and transport infrastructure. 
Airports and border crossings could all be impacted, it warned, adding, Coordinated Russian services are behind the cyber attack. This kind of attack was carried out for the first time in Montenegro, and it has been prepared for a long period of time. According to an AP report cited by ABC News, a government spokesman said, I can say with certainty that this attack that Montenegro is experiencing these days comes directly from Russia. What's being seen in southeastern Europe is a deliberate campaign, but there are also inherent difficulties in constraining cyber effects in a discriminating way. Modern Diplomacy has an essay that, while overstating the actual tactical and operational effects of cyber operations in Russia's war against Ukraine, points to the difficulty of waging cyber war in a discriminate fashion. Cyber effects easily cross borders, and the blurred lines between state and non-state actors render it difficult to apply familiar principles of war involving requirements that forces operate under effective government control. The essay singles out terrorists, but might have with equal justice said criminals. And in hybrid war, other people's servers represent an irresistible temptation, practically what the lawyers call an attractive nuisance. Concern about spillover is not, however, simply a matter of academic speculation or a priori probability. Switzerland's Federal Intelligence Service is reported to be concerned about possible Russian exploitation of Swiss servers to mount interference campaigns against Western elections. The FIS didn't comment on the report directly, saying only, Switzerland, as a European nation and as part of the Western community, is a target of anti-Western influence campaigns promoting the Russian narrative. Dialogo Americas reports increased Russian and Chinese efforts to establish a cyber beachhead in Latin America. Those efforts have been marked by Spanish-language disinformation campaigns and, in the case of Russia, a stepped-up tempo of privateering activity, for the most part by well-known ransomware gangs. Chinese efforts have been marked by an attempt at developing influence through technology exports. ZTE has been used to induce a dependence on Chinese tech in Venezuela, where it finds a welcome audience in the Maduro regime. Russian military cyber personnel deployed to Venezuela in May of 2019 in the overt role of helping the country recover from the collapse of its power grid. Many of those personnel have remained. Bloomberg reports that a bot-driven Chinese influence campaign has been running against Linus Rare Earths Limited, an Australian mining company engaged in the extraction and processing of rare earth metals in Australia and Malaysia. Bogus social media accounts circulate accusations of environmental irresponsibility on the part of Linus with a view to influencing Australian and U.S. public opinion. Rare earths are essential to the electronic and green energy sectors. Dominance of both sectors is a key long-standing objective of Chinese policy. Green is good from Beijing's point of view, but to be realistic, it's good chiefly insofar as it's good for business, insofar as it provides a competitive advantage. As a policy commitment, not so much. Microsoft reports that the Iranian state cyber threat actor it tracks as Mercury, and which others know as Muddy Water, Seed Worm, and Static Kitten, is exploiting Log4j2 vulnerabilities in sysaid applications. All the targets have been organizations in Israel. Microsoft says, 
While Mercury has used Log4j2 exploits in the past, such as on vulnerable VMware apps, we have not seen this actor using sysaid apps as a vector for initial access until now. After gaining access, Mercury establishes persistence, dumps credentials, and moves laterally within the targeted organization using both custom and well-known hacking tools, as well as built-in operating system tools for its hands-on keyboard attack. The campaign is another instance in the long-running story of Log4j vulnerabilities. Experts predicted that exploits would be endemic for years until the vulnerabilities were worked out of the software supply chain, and this recent wave is entirely consistent with those expectations. We mentioned for disclosure that Microsoft is a CyberWire partner. So, keep looking for the vulnerabilities in your enterprise, and this week, start with SysAid. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. It is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show the CyberWire's own Rick Howard. He is our chief security officer and also our chief analyst. Rick, welcome back. Hey, Dave. So over on the company's Slack channel this week, a bunch of us were discussing one of our favorite movies, which is 2012's Zero Dark Thirty. I love that uh, That was starring yeah. Yeah, Jessica Chastain and, of course, the late, great James Gandolfini. Um, and for those who don't know it, it's just the movie about how the CIA found where Osama bin Laden was hiding after 9-11. And you were saying that there's a scene in that movie that directly applies to calculating cyber risk. Yeah. I have to say, when I read that, I was a little bit skeptical. So I get that a explain, lot, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> explain for us, how does the decision to assassinate Osama bin Laden compare to calculating cyber risk? 
Well, I'm so glad you asked, all right? So the the scene in question is when Gandolfini, he's playing the CIA director at the time, Leon Panetta, and he's in a conference room with his staff asking them for a recommendation on whether or not Osama bin Laden is in the bunker. And he's looking for a yes or no answer. And one of his guys says that he fronted the bad recommendation about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. And Dave, do you remember what the CIA thought back then about whether or not Iraq had WMD? Yeah, I mean, my, my recollection is that um, the CIA director, uh, George Tenet, told President Bush that this was a slam dunk, that these weapons were in-country, and uh, President Bush used that assessment as one of the main reasons to invade, right? That's right. That's that's exactly what happened, right? And so in the movie, Gandolfini's staffer says that because of that intelligence failure, that bad recommendation, the CIA doesn't deal in certainties anymore. They deal in probabilities, which, you know, mm. that's the right answer, by the way. Just It's just not a very satisfying one. And the, in the movie, the, in the scene, they go around the room and get a range of probabilities from 60% to 80% that Osama bin Laden's in the bunker. And then Chastain breaks into the conversation and says, the probability is 100%. And she, oh, she says, okay, fine. 95% because I know certainty freaks you out, but it's 100%. <laughs> I love that scene. <laughs> Which, by the way, that's the wrong answer, all right? The probability was never 100%, no matter how sure she was with her evidence. Uh, so, But the CIA staffer was right for really complex questions like, is Osama bin Laden in the bunker? And will my organization get hit by a ransomware attack this year? We don't deal in certainty. We deal in probabilities. So for this week's CSO's Perspective Show, I walk everybody through that process of how you can assess the probability of material impact to your organization due to some cyber event in the next year. Hmm. Well, before I let you go, uh, you have your Word Notes podcast. What is the phrase of the week over there? Yeah, so we're talking about a concept called sideloading, which is the process of legitimately or illegitimately, depending on your perspective, of installing apps onto your smartphone without going through your vendor's app store, which, which might be a good thing for you because you can install any piece of software that you want, but it also opens up an attack vector for black hats to install Trojan horse malware onto your systems. All right, well, be sure to check that out. And of course, CSO Perspectives is part of CyberWire Pro. You can find out all about that on our website, thecyberwire.com. Rick Howard, thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And it is always my pleasure to welcome back to the show Dinah Davis. She is the VP of R&D Operations at Arctic Wolf and also the founder of Code Like a Girl. 
Dinah, great to welcome you back. Um, there is a, a recent ransomware report uh, that caught your eye, and uh, there was uh, something they highlighted in here. It had to do with some myths when it comes to ransomware. What can you share with us today? Yeah, there's this really interesting report from Coveware, and they they highlighted something that I hadn't seen very much before, which is you know four myths of why you should pay ransomware. So you know, when when they may be explaining to customers or when industry experts are telling people don't pay the ransom, these are reasons why companies tend to come back and say, no, I need to pay the ransom for these four reasons or one of these four reasons, right? Hmm. The one is uh, paying mitigates the risk of har- harmful impact to the parties. So they believe that like, if if I pay the ransom, I get everything back, even if they exfiltrated data, they're going to give it back to me and then nobody's going to be impacted. The problem is the moment the data is stolen, there's already liabilities, right? Even as mm. simple as having to report to local governments that the data has been stolen. So the victim company may have to pay for credit protection and notify impacted parties that their data was stolen, even if they get it back, right? So There's also nothing that will guarantee that the hackers will delete your data or even resell it after you pay. So not paying because you think you're um, going to not have impacted parties is it just it's not going to work for you. Like Mm. not a good reason. Mm -hmm. The second reason companies often give for saying they should pay uh, the ransom is to mitigate the potential for class action liability. That one was really interesting to me. I'm like, oh, I didn't know people, you know, were considering that as a reason they should they should pay. Issue there is there's there's no case law at all, especially in the U.S., to support that paying ransom will protect you from a class action lawsuit. And typically, if somebody's going to try and come after you with a class action lawsuit, they're going to do it whether you pay it or not. Like mm. the the fact that it happened was enough for them to to you know get on that bandwagon and try and make a buck. So the next one is paying shows my impacted parties that we did everything to protect their data. So they're saying like, <laughs> okay, like you know we did everything to try and protect your data. We even paid the ransom. Well, um, right. dude. Except, uh, <laughs> except you lost my data. Right. <laughs> except it's right. already gone. <laughs> like, yeah. What's going mm. on here? Mm. Right. So, um, what they're saying is it's much more important to communicate to your impacted parties how the breach hacked, happened. They're saying that the better response is to be candid, to be honest, contrite. Um, and then you're, impacted parties are going to like respect and appreciate your transparency a lot more. And I think, you know, that's definitely what we've, we've seen in, in the media, right? People who try and squash it and quiet it down and just say, well, I paid, so we're good. Haven't been getting as much good press as the people who have said, yes, we got hit. Like it's very likely most companies are going to get hit by some kind of breach at some point, right? That's just how rampant things are. And it's much more important on how you're handling that afterwards now. And then the last one goes right into that as well, which is paying will limit the brand damage from negative PR. Well, I think that just goes right back to what we were just saying, right? If you pay it and try and hide it a little bit more, it's not going to be good for you. It's better uh, to just get it out there. It was interesting because one article I read said that the PR wave 
that happens when cyber criminals leak data that were previously stolen has a media half-life of six hours. Hmm. So if you go out there and you say, look, our data was stolen, like your half-life is six hours. It's going to be gone and done within a day or two, right? Wow. As opposed to the uh, hacker coming out and said, hey, we stole your data. That lives on much, much longer, right? So it you can scoop the criminal, basically, if you post that you've done it before they post that they're doing it to you. Oh, interesting. And I suppose that, so by getting in front of it, you, you really can control the narrative. Yeah, that's basically what they're saying. Because I think it's also like becoming more and more clear to people and just the everyday person that these things are going to happen to everyone. So a responsible company tells you as soon as they know um, and then manages the situation from there. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting, uh, interesting advice for sure. Dinah Davis, thanks for joining us. That's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. Don't forget to check out the Grumpy Old Geeks podcast, where I contribute to a regular segment called Security. Ha! Huh? I join Jason and Brian on their show for a lively discussion of the latest security news every week. You can find Grumpy Old Geeks where all the fine podcasts are listed. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing Cyberwire team is Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karpf, Eliana White, Haru Prakash, Liz Irvin, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Ivan, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.